Welcome to Dad Devotionals with Dave Domzowski. This is the place for Christian fathers, husbands, and those who love them to find the inspiration, grace, and guidance to help you live God's will for your life and finish your race strong. We share scripture readings, prayers, and advice to help you in your personal and professional life. Now pop in the earbuds or turn up the volume and let's get to today's episode. Welcome to Dad Devotionals. I'm Dave Domzowski. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Father Ted Polcini. Father Ted is a veteran pastor and professor with decades of experience. He actually retired from the priesthood just last year and was my family's priest at St. Mary's Orthodox Church in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. He also put together an excellent three-part lecture series with Patristic Nectar called Breaking the Twin Shackles, Overcoming Anger and Despair in the Spiritual Struggle. I know I really valued listening to that. Father Ted, thanks for joining me on the Dad Devotionals podcast. It is great to have you. It is my pleasure. It's my honor. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. No problem at all. Uh, Really quick, was there anything that I left out uh, from the intro that you want to mention here briefly? Well, not really. I mean, as you said, I retired from the parish uh, last year, I also retired from teaching at Dickinson College, where I'd been teaching since 1995. Uh, I have to say, I love both aspects of my career. I love teaching, and I love being a pastor. And I'm glad I retired when I did, because everything I enjoyed about teaching and pastoring involved interaction with people. And now that we're doing all of this by distance and virtually, I'm glad I got out when I did, because it would have sucked a lot of the joy out for me in both of those areas of my life. But in the years that I, I've been a priest, at the end of this month will be my 36th anniversary. Wow. And, uh, you know, I was at Dickinson for almost 25 years. Those were great years, and I'm so grateful for both of them. But I'm also glad I had the chance to teach and to pastor in a very interactive way, which unfortunately, we've had to curtail quite a bit in the last couple of months. Sure. Well, I mean, you, you downloaded Zoom now, so you'd be all set to go virtually if you had to. Uh, that's right. But there's <laughs> this, it's good to see your face, but it would be much better if it were literally face-to-face in person. I, I completely understand. I miss Anna and I miss the kids. Well, you know what? I'd, I'd, I'd invite them to come down, but we don't want them <laughs> for recording purposes. <laughs> Yes, I understand. Well, well, Father Ted, I I want to discuss, you know, how can we keep Holy Week holy? You know, just what we were saying during this era of virtual church services. Can you shed some light on that and how we can have a more positive spiritual experience? Well, you formulate the question very well, because I think there are positive aspects to this. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, uh, every confession I make as a priest and my confessor, I begin by saying, I take too lightly the sacred things, the the awesome holy things that are entrusted to me. Sometimes I do this in a mechanical way without really realizing what I'm doing. And I realize that after functioning as a priest for 36 years, it's done me a lot of good to be able to stand back and to worship virtually, taking part in services in my old parish in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and also at the monastery in Wayne, West Virginia. But it's given me an opportunity to stand back and to really read the text and meditate on the text and really internalize a lot of the stuff I've been saying for years but never really had a chance to reflect on. 
And so having this distance between the externals of worship and, you know, what I'm doing now in isolation or in, uh, you know, self-confinement uh, is really developing my interiority more. And I think that can happen with everyone. Uh, like it or not, we've been forced to become more interior mm. and see the need of that interiority, not just going to church, not just doing what we have to do. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not minimizing the importance of being physically there and engaging in the liturgy as a community. But this forced situation has given me an opportunity to become much more interior in my spiritual life. And I think for a lot of people, that's the way it's been. Sure. So this is a good thing. You know, it's, it's interesting that you brought up the, the interior, because in my conversation yesterday, it actually debuted today on the, on the podcast uh, as a day of recording. It's uh, April 15th. Uh, with uh, Dr. Philip Mamalakis, he actually mentioned a very similar thing about that, that in, interior aspect and that being very important, uh, you know, not only for your spiritual journey, but also for uh, as a parent uh, and then, you know, bringing your ch- children up in the church, bringing your children up with, uh, you know, proper virtues. Um, How often we say, you know, the church should be in the home as well. Well, now we don't have any <laughs> excuse. It has to be. Exactly, exactly. A lot of the things we set up as an ideal in the past, we've been forced to implement. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, Professor Mamalakis has said pretty much the same thing. The interiority is good spiritually, but it's good intellectually, and it's good emotionally mm-hmm. and familially. So this, uh, there can be good things as a result of this. You know, as, as a few former priest, uh, Father, you know, this is your first year not celebrating Holy Week, mm-hmm. you know, despite the circumstances. Is that a strange feeling for you? Even yes. if you still had the, you know, the normal services, how is that? Yes, it is very strange. And the metaphor I use, and I think it has biblical basis, it's like I'm in exile. Mm. We're all in exile. Think about what happened in the history of biblical Israel. The Babylonians came in at the first part of the 6th century BC, and they destroyed the temple. They took the people away or a chunk of the population away, far away at a great distance. They took away their stability. They took away their land. They took away the temple. And there they are hundreds of miles away. And they're in exile. And the exile was painful because they missed their home. They missed the temple, the center of the place where they could worship. They missed the land. They missed so much because they were in exile from it. Well, we're in exile from our temple, so to speak, from the places of our worship. And I think that that's what I feel like. I feel as if I'm in exile. I think we're all in exile with this. But there's a saying, the famous Old Testament scholar, Bernard Anderson, who used to teach Old Testament at Princeton, in his famous introduction uh, to uh, the Old Testament, said this about the exile in biblical Israel. He said, he brought up this old proverb, the bee fertilizes the flower it robs. In other words, a bee comes in, it swoops down on a flower, and it takes from the flower the nectar that it needs to make the honey, but it also gives something to the flower because of the pollination. It enables the flower to produce seeds or the flower of a fruit, fruit tree to produce a fruit by the pollination. So it takes something from the flower, but it gives something as well. Well, you can see the parallel I'm drawing. The flower was Israel. The bee was Babylon. 
And it came in and it took from Israel all of these things, the temple, uh, the land, uh, the stability. But they gave Israel something. And here's what I mean. If you look at the history of biblical Israel, uh, what did the exile do? It gave the people a stronger identity. In fact, the term that we use, Judaism, developed in the exile. Because the people said, these people are from Judah, this is their religion, and so they had to re-energize and reformulate their religion, and that's how we got the word Judaism. And then, here they are for some 50 years before the Persians came into power and allowed the people to go back. What did they do? They had to keep worshiping, they had to keep studying, they didn't have the temple anymore. So, they said, no, we still exist in this exile, we still have our faith. We still have our commitment to God. And what did they develop? They developed something you already know about, the synagogue. Mm. The synagogue before the exile. But when the people came back from the exile, they brought the synagogue with them. So it enriched. They rebuilt the temple, and they brought the synagogue back uh, with them from exile. That's what we're up to now. Interesting. Now, I, I, like, I like that analogy. Yeah. I mean, in isolation, the bee... Uh, in this case, is the coronavirus. Right, right. It's taken from us so much. But if we look at it correctly and positively, it's given us some uh, opportunities for spiritual depth and expansion. Now, last one I want to make in this analogy. The people came back from exile, but not all of them came back. Hmm. Many people stayed in Babylon. They had gotten used to it. They sort of liked it, you know. and. But when the Persians, when Cyrus issued his edict telling the Jews you can go back, the people who were really committed did go back. And they had a lot of trouble rebuilding the temple, but they did it. And they had the added advantages of having the temple and the synagogue. In Jesus' time, for instance, Jesus went to the temple and he also went to synagogues. Right. right? Uh, so you had the people come back from the exile who were really committed. And they, they really had a struggle in re, to rebuild everything they had lost. That's what we're going to face, hopefully sooner rather than later. I just saw this Harvard study that said, barring the development of a vaccine, we may have to practice distancing until 2022 in various ways. That's now, everyone hopes we'll have a vaccine before then, yeah. and that will really help. To things. It's never going to be exactly like it was. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting you bring up people not coming back. I think from a secular perspective, I don't know how many people want to come back to work after working telework five days a week. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. We, there are certain advantages to this. So, I'm wearing slippers right now. So, I mean. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I was just saying, well, I have my clericals on now, but I don't have black pants on because I'm sitting down and I know no one can see. <laughs> but I have to tell you, this is, there are certain things that are bad that we've adopted as a result of this distancing and isolation, a laziness and so forth. But there are good things, as I said. We have to focus in on those good things, stand back and say, what is it that we learned as a result of this? And then when we come back to rebuild a lot of what we've lost, how do we enrich our experience with what we brought back with us? And that's, a, as I said, I'm glad I'm retired because that would be a real challenge. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. It can be a real moment of growth 
Um, and I just want to make one point too. Sure, please. Following my analogy with uh, the exile, the Babylonian exile. Mm-hmm. First temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, but the second temple, the, the temple that Jesus knew, and after the death and resurrection of Christ and the church formed, the second temple was destroyed by the Romans in right. 70, AD 70. So when Judaism lost the second temple, they were able to survive largely because of what they got as a result of the experience of the first mm-hmm. exile. Interesting. The diaspora survived, Judaism survived in the diaspora. You know, this might not be the last bout we have with this kind of thing. Right. So what are we learning? And what are, what are we going to take with us to strengthen us in case we have another bout with this kind of thing? God willing, we won't. But you never know. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, one of the last times, I think, in, at least in the U.S., when we saw something to this, to this level, I think, was the Spanish flu. But in some of the things that I, that I read for the, for the Orthodox Church, the last time it closed on a scale like this was actually the bubonic plague. So right. it has seen this before. The um, Holy Sepulchre is closed now in Jerusalem. Right. It's the first time it's been closed since the 14th century, since wow. the bubonic plague. Imagine, this is a big, when the history is written, this is going to be a major event. Absolutely. We want people to remember us as taking from this tragic event of deprivation something positive that strengthened us, that made us stronger, made spirituality wider and deeper. And that's the way we have to look at this, I think. No, I I couldn't agree more, but I I do want to switch gears a little bit. You you mentioned in our discussions uh, previously earlier this week, you know, and even during your lectures on anger that you had, you've had time to reflect on things. Can, Can you take us through maybe some of those moments and some of those uh, things that you've learned about yourself in those quiet moments? Yeah, um, I learned that, you know, I do believe the kingdom of God is within us, you know, and I think a lot of the, we do, work we do as individual Christians, and as priests, certainly, is we're always looking for things outside of ourselves, right, belong to the kingdom. Um, we talk a lot to God. We say prayers constantly. We're constantly telling God what we need. But, you know, we don't listen very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the UCC church in town here says it has on its uh, signboard this motto, God is still speaking. And I am tempted to go and write, but is anyone listening? <laughs> and that's what the silence has taught me. I was always sort of good at speaking. I love it. I love this. When you told me you wanted to interview me, I said, great, a chance to talk and to have some, someone listen to me. But I wasn't very good at listening. Uh, when I was doing my counseling training, um, you know, because I had extensive training in personal counseling, and I remember my supervisor saying to me, you know, you're always very good in interacting with people, but you need to shut up more and listen. This is one thing that came home to me in taking that quiet time. Um, you know, I, I think sometime I also feel cut to the quick in this quiet time. Cause I realize a lot of the advice I've given to people, uh, I haven't followed myself. Yeah. And so this is what repentance is about, you know, and you can't repent unless you have silence. Remember the ideal Orthodox spirituality, it's called in Greek Hezekia, which usually is translated badly as silence. Really what it is more properly is stillness, Hmm. being still. Let the Spirit speak in words beyond human words. 
in images beyond the imagery that we know. So what I've learned, yes, from what that I learned in this silence, that I really was not listening to the urgings of the spirit within me as well as I should, and not even listening on a purely human level to what really was going on inside myself. Mm -hmm. And the silence uh, has really made such a difference. I mean, I have good neighbors, they're not very noisy, and I have silence during the day. Right. And I can really think, things become so clear in silence. And silence can be threatening though, because of this. And what do I mean by that? I have a friend who's a Roman Catholic nun. In fact, she was present at the celebration for my retirement that we had last August. Mm -hmm. And she belongs to a religious order where her order requires her to take a silent retreat once every seven years, I think, for a month. And she said, the first week is wonderful. You relax. The second week, you start to sort of get antsy about things to do. The third week, you're terrified because the silence screams at you, hmm. really forces you to go into yourself and to listen. And the fourth week, hopefully, is a time of arriving at a higher level because you have listened. So I think... You know, asceticism, you know, we, we talk a lot about asceticism. I think there are two elements of asceticism. The first is deprivation. You deprive yourself of something. And the second is, after the deprivation, you have this sense of reconstruction. All right? Uh, you're deprived of something, and you discipline yourself to rebuild yourself on the basis of that deprivation. Now, when we talk about asceticism usually it's voluntary right you voluntarily fast you voluntarily restrict your diet and pray more these are all voluntary actions and as a result of that you discipline yourself to do certain things but that's all voluntary this has not been voluntary. absolutely it's externally imposed so in a way it's like an enforced asceticism right and that's the other point i want to admit to but that i you know arrive at during this silence that my asceticism was always hedging my bets in some ways. I was never fully into it until the situation external to myself made me take it without most seriousness. So this has been sort of a time of genuine, I don't want to be overly melodramatic about it, mm -hmm. but it's a time of real repentance for me. No, I can appreciate that. But, you know, as since this is a podcast that's really devoted to Orthodox fathers and husbands, sometimes having that chance for silence doesn't really come often or easy, even during this period this, and this pandemic. So, um, you know, what advice can you offer parents, dads in particular, about overcoming something like anger? Because that was a subject of your amazing talk. It's something that I struggle with. And it's something that, you know, while maybe for some people, it is a moment, a chance to have silence right now. For, for dads, you know, especially those working from home like me, it's actually a chance for increased um, noise, uh, you know, because we, you know, in, in going to work and having a commute, that would be my time to reflect. That would be my time for silence. I don't have as much time for silence as I used to. So, and, and it invokes that anger because I don't get, I don't have that time to compress or decompression, I should say. And even uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Philip Mamalakis yesterday in, in speaking with him, you know, he, he actually relayed to me the same thing. You come out of your office as a father, you come out and it's even working from home, you know, it's quiet, you're engaged with your work and, you, and then, you know, you, you, in, you, you walk into chaos. <laughs> yes. Well, first of all, yeah, no, this is, I'm glad you brought this up. You know, if you remember from 
um, the talks I gave about anger. By the way, I came up with that topic not because it was assigned to me. Uh, you know, the, the priest, Father Josiah Trenum, and the clergy, the Metropolitan, when I gave a series on the same topic, the clergy of the Western Diocese, they let me choose the topic. Mm. Why did I choose that topic? Because it's something I struggle with, too. There's an old saying is, listen to what a preacher preaches about, because his first audience is himself. Right. And anger is something inside me as well. Um, now, getting to the situation of parents like you, and not having silence, craving the silence. Exactly. Kids buzzing around and, you know, all of this. And this is something that I think, if you remember in the advice I gave, I said one of the ways to overcome anger, one of the techniques that really has a patristic basis, it sort of surprised me a little bit, and where some of the writers will say, imagine becoming angry. Imagine things provoking that are going to provoke your anger in a day. And you really can do that pretty accurately. Things that are going to really tick you off and make you angry and really yeah. set you off. And then they said, imagine in your mind how you're going to deal with that in a more constructive way than you have in the past. In other words, think about what's going to trigger the anger and preemptively deal with it so that when it does happen, you're not thrown by it. Now, I think for parenting, you know your kids and your kids know you too, but you know your kids and you know what they're going to do and not do. Right. And so we have to learn in situations like this to bloom where we're planted in a better way. And so I think one of the things that you can do to help find, uh, you know, the way of maybe finding some calm and silence, even in the chaos of home life, is by taking some time, even amidst, amidst all the stuff you're doing, to imagine the things that are going to happen and systematically maybe come up with new ways to address those, new creative ways to address them. And to remind yourself, and this is what a priest always has to do as well, because uh, he's a father after all, and in a different kind of way, and he has hundreds of kids, and some of them you think they're loud at home, you have hundreds of them really can create chaos. Remind yourself of what you're doing here, the high calling that is yours. I mean, parents are modern-day martyrs. I don't know how you guys do it. Oh, I really, thank you so much. No, I really, let me tell you, all, you know, all hyperbole and melodrama aside, this is really, if a martyr is giving witness to faith in Christ, I think it was easier for our great-grandparents and grandparents to do that. Nowadays, it's very hard. And I think parents like you and Anna and the people who listen to these things take very seriously is how to live that martyrdom in a constructive way. I tell you, the worst way, the surest way to violate that martyrdom is to do things out of anger. Because when kids leave the church, and they do a lot, one of the things they always bring up is how people were always angry. The priest was angry at me, and the people at church always seemed angry, and there wasn't any joy, this sort of thing. A lot of times that's what makes people they, they believe in an angry God because in a godly setting, supposedly the setting that manifests God, they saw a lot of anger. Hmm. And what I've had to do as a priest and what you have to do as a parent and other parents have to do is know that you're going to have provocations to anger. But how do you deal with those in a way that really helps to make it more constructive than destructive? And I think one of the ways is to recall the exalted office to which you've been called and to realize that this can be part of the medicine 
for the soul, for yourself and for others by dealing with that anger forthrightly. Uh, my motto, I have two mottos for my priesthood, by the way. The first is from Matthew chapter 10. Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves, therefore be as cunning as serpents and as innocent as doves. That's the first one. And that's sort of a, a sort of negative view of what a priest has to do. The second is this, and it applies to parents as well. Never do anything. This is from Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in all humility, consider others as more important than yourself. And if that is something that you can begin to put in effect in little ways, it begins to kill the anger because you feel that you're giving the antidote to anger, namely the kind of love that can be sometimes, you know, demanding love, but still it's love. And it sort of erases all that negativity uh, of an emotionally expressed anger that in all too well, many cases these days actually becomes violent. One of the things, by the way, that's happening in this time period is the increase in domestic violence. Right. That doesn't surprise me because people have not imagined these alternative ways of addressing the anger that is without a doubt going to emerge and maybe some time spent with that, not saying I'm never going to get angry, because that's a lie. I mean, that's just a lie. But how can I deal with this more effectively? And maybe in this situation where you're dealing with a lot of intensity, uh, some time where you can think about that yourself or discuss it with your spouse, whatever, this is something that can, I think, have a good effect. I appreciate you saying that. I think folks are going to have to actually gleam a lot of, uh, you know, positive information from that. And, and, and more, um, you know, encouragement. I think that's what, what that response offers. I appreciate that. Um, the last thing I want to ask you, just 60 seconds, anything that I didn't ask that you want to impart to your listeners? That please be part of the restoration, the way those returnees from exile mm-hmm. were in the sixth century before Christ. Uh, we need people to commit to that. In a way, I think God always prunes the tree. We have a lot of hangers-on in the church, all right? And I think maybe this is a way of really sorting out, uh, separating the wheat from the tares, you know, to have people who are really committed coming back and engaging in the rebuilding of the temple, uh, the way Zerubbabel and all those people in the Old Testament did. And this is something that I think if we have to start recommitting ourselves to now because it's going to be so different afterwards. It's not going to be just going back to what it was. It's going to be new and creative, prepare for that creative period, be a part of the restoration. You're absolutely right, Father. And, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. This was excellent. I really do appreciate it. And thank you for inviting me and for forcing me to use Zoom from home. I've never had to do it from home. And at college, there was always the IT people to take care of everything. So I had to do it myself. Well, you're more than welcome. Happy to do another tutorial anytime you want. Anytime you let me know. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, let's get to our gospel reading for the day, shall we? It comes from the Gospel of John, and this is the part that's at the washing of the feet. We're going to do this, both gospels for the washing of the feet, the, the during it and the after. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it 
into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew he would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Now, this is the continuation of the Gospel of John after the washing of the feet. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen. And now for our prayerful reflection, the Lenten prayer of St. Ephraim. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. But give rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, grant me to see my own transgressions, and not to judge my brother. For blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for listening to Dad Devotionals. I hope you enjoyed um, the gospel reading, the prayer, and of course, my interview with Father Ted Pulcini. Have a blessed Holy Thursday and continuation of Holy Week, and please make Good Friday holy as well. I'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to Dad Devotionals with me, Dave Domzowski. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and also email us at daddevotionals at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash daddevotionals and also youtube.com slash daddevotionals. Make sure to subscribe, like us, do whatever you got to do to stay in touch. Thank you for listening.